Well, today, it is not always easy for us to tell the Christian from the non-Christian. After all, the latest Gallup poll, the latest uh, Pew Research suggests 80% of America professes to be a Christian. Did you know that? 80% of Americans identify with Christ. Let's consider this fact for a second. Does it seem to you as you drive on Highway 105 that 80% of the people driving next to you drive distinctively Christian? Does it seem to you that 80% of the people who text, comment, and tweet using social media do so with the words and attitude of Christ? In the grocery store, do 80% of moms talk to their kids in a distinctively Christ-like way? And does it seem to you that 80% of America holds to conservative biblical principles such as, just to name a few, the sanctity of life and marriage between a man and a woman? I believe that the statistics don't seem to match reality. I think in part it is so easy for us here in America to profess Christ all the while living however we want the rest of the week. I mean, think about it. If you and I moved to China, to Iran, to Afghanistan, to North Korea, would you profess Christ if you didn't mean it? Would you? There would be a cost associated with that profession. And so here in America, at least, we seem to develop a Christian culture where we identify with Christ, but in large part fail to live like Christ. Was this what the Bible teaches? Well, we know better, don't we? Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20. Galatians 2.20, you know this verse well. Paul says this, I have been crucified with, what? Christ. And it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, meaning in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. If we are in Christ, we have been crucified. That old self is dead, and we are new creatures in Christ. And when our identity is found in Christ, we will be filled with Christ to the point that we live like Christ. In fact, I once heard a preacher say this, The surest sign that you're carrying a full bucket is wet feet. Is that true? Assuming you have water in there. Full bucket, wet feet, because as it's filled to the brim, what happens when you live and move with it? It spills out, it overflows. You can't help it, it's going to happen. The Bible teaches that if we are made alive in Christ, then we will develop the priorities of Christ which will in turn result in Christ-likeness that should overflow and spill onto everything we do, everything we say, and everyone we meet. When you drive on Highway 105, when you comment on social media, when you talk with your kids in public and in private, is it obvious that Christ is in you? Is it obvious that he is in me? So this morning, I want us to focus on our God-given priorities. 
so that Christ in us would spill out through our thoughts, our words, and our actions. And to do that, I want to encourage you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. Colossians chapter 3, verses 15 to 17. As you're turning there, and this is one of the disadvantages of teaching three verses in the middle of a book. This is why we typically teach through the whole book. Someday we're going to get through Romans. Are you with me? It's going to happen. The benefit of taking our time is you understand the context of a book. Well, what is the context of Colossians? Again, the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to help counteract some false teaching that had sprung up within the church at Colossae. Specifically, that Christ wasn't enough for salvation. There were false teachers coming in saying Christ wasn't enough. You needed Christ plus something like knowledge. Christ plus ritualistic, legalistic ceremonialism. These are some of the things that they were saying. And since Christ was no longer sufficient, this baby church, they believers began to turn to other things. They began to add things to Christ. They began to go back to their sinful ways and patterns. After all, if Christ isn't supreme and sufficient, why bother? So Paul wrote this letter to encourage, to challenge these Christians to live pure lives because Christ is enough. In fact, that's what the first two chapters of Colossians are all all about, the supremacy, the wonder, the incredible awesomeness of Christ, who he is, what he is, what he's done, what he's doing, and what he will do. And then we get to chapter three. Look at verse one. This is the, 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 the corner. The first two chapters are predominantly theological. The last two chapters, three and four, are predominantly practical if, if chapters 1 and 2 are true, then chapters 3 and 4, this is what you should do as a result. So in chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Therefore, as a result of everything I've said, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Look, Christian, You're dead, buried, raised with Christ. You are not a slave to your sin. You are a new creature. Keep seeking Christ. Keep seeking spiritually things, God-honoring things. Live your life this way. In verse 5, notice he says, Therefore, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, greed, which amounts to idolatry. Why should we consider the members of our body dead to the deeds of the flesh? Well, because in verse 8 and 9, we put them aside. We've laid them aside. Verse 8, put them aside. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, abusive speech. Don't lie. Why? Since you've laid aside that old self with its evil practices. And in verse 10, what have we done? And we have put on the new self. Our identity is in Christ, because as verse 11 says, Christ is all and in all. So those are the verses leading up to our section. And what are they saying? They're saying that Christ's power saves us, keeps us, helps us persevere and grow. If Christ is in you, it should show. Here in Colossians 3, verses 15 to 17, Paul gives us three priorities that should mark the life of every Christian. Three priorities. Let me read our text for this morning, starting in verse 15. 
Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Well, notice we find this first priority that should mark every Christian's life in verse 15. What is it? It's the peace of Christ. The peace of Christ. Paul says, let this peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Now, this concept of peace has two aspects to it. It's important for us to think this through. In one sense, this peace is given to the new believer through Christ at the moment that we repent of our sins and put our faith in Jesus Christ alone. Before we were saved, what was our relationship like to God? Well, just look at what he says earlier on. He says, even in this text, because of, in verse 6, because of these things, the wrath of God will come upon the sons of disobedience. Before we repented of our sins and put our faith in Christ, who were we? The sons and daughters of disobedience. And what were we under? The wrath of God. We sang about it, even this morning. And so in Christ, we are given peace between us and our creator, God, because what are the wages of sin, church? Death. Someone has to die. And in Christ, who died? He did so that we could have his life. We have peace with God through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. In fact, Jesus himself said to his disciples in John 14, 27. John 14, 27, Jesus said, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Peace of Christ gives us peace with God. And because we have Christ's personal peace, we enter into a peace agreement with God, which gives us the second aspect of this peace, which is an attitude of rest or security. Again, Pastor Ken talked about this last week. Can anything separate us from the love of God? You seem confused by that question. Let me ask it again. Can anything separate us from the love of God? No. What is the attitude that that will bring to you? A peace of rest and security and hope and wonder. God did that for me? Yes. We have this sense of well-being because the war between us and God is finished, paid for by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So Paul says this, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. This word rule was used to describe the, the activity of an umpire, an umpire who, who basically was, was deciding the outcome of an athletic event. The peace of Christ becomes the umpire in our believing hearts. Now this kind of makes sense, doesn't it? If we remove the umpire from today's game between the Astros and the... Okay, we have five Astros fans. Angels, thank you. Between the Astros and the Angels, starting this afternoon, we remove the umpire. What's going to happen in that game? The Astros will win. 
If we remove the umpire, what's going to happen is the same thing that happened to us when we were playing baseball as kids. The pitcher says, strike. What does the batter say? Ball. And before you know it, what are they doing? Rolling around the ground, trading punches. You remove the umpire, what happens? Conflict. War. When faced with a decision, the Christian could, should consider two factors. If the peace of Christ is umping, being the umpire in your heart. Is that a verb, umping? You can tell I don't play baseball. Is that what an umpire does? Does he ump? I don't know. Someone want to help me out, bail me out? No? Okay, we'll just move on. When faced with a decision, the Christian should consider these two factors. Number one, is my decision consistent with the fact that Christ and I are now at peace, that we're on the same side? Is what I'm about to say, what I'm about to do, the decision that I'm going to make, is it consistent with the fact that we're one? We're at peace. We're on the same, what? Team. We're playing the same priority, the same goal. Just to give you one practical example of this, 1 Corinthians 6, 17 to 18, provides an excellent example of this point. Paul says, but he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. What does that mean? If we become a Christian, who are we united with? The Lord in one spirit. So what should the result of being united to Christ produce in us? Well, it's the very next verse. He says, flee from sexual immorality. If the peace of Christ is ruling in my heart and I have been united with Christ, it will affect the things that I watch. It will affect the, the things that I click on on the internet. It affects the things that I allow my mind to dwell on and think about. Because when I'm faced with temptation for sexual immorality, being united with Christ, we're on the same team. Do I want to drag Christ into that with me? No. So what should I do? Flee. It's just one verse that gives us this idea. It's my union with Christ that drives me to purity. This affects all of these decisions. There's a second factor that every Christian should consider when faced with a decision. Will this decision leave me with a deep and abiding peace in my heart? If I do this or say this, am I going to be at peace afterwards, in the middle of it? Again, Philippians 4 Verses 6 says what? You know this passage? Let me just read it for us. This is one of those ones I typically quote and butcher. And it's not good to butcher the word of God. Philippians 4 verse 6 says, Be anxious for nothing but in everything by what? Prayer and supplication with what? Thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God which surpasses what? Comprehension. It's incomprehensible, this peace of God. What will this peace do? Will guard your hearts and your minds in what? Christ Jesus. Why am I anxious? I'm worried about future things happening or not happening. So when I start to feel that anxiety or that fear, what do I do? I take my trust and I say, God, I need you. I don't know what to do. Would you help me with this? And as I thankfully let my request be made known to God. What does he give us in return? Peace, incomprehensible peace. 
It's an amazing thought. So when we obey the will of God, when we pursue the will of God, again, why are we asking God? Why are we praying to God? Because we want to do his, what? His will. And when I am doing his will, what do we experience, church? The peace of God. So what's the opposite? When I go my way, when I lean on my own understanding, when, when I ignore God's word, or, or even the opposite side of that is I intentionally do the opposite. I say, no, God, not your way, but mine. What do we get? Well, we lose his peace. Turn with me over to Proverbs chapter 3. Proverbs 3, there's a lot of wisdom in the Psalms and the Proverbs. Proverbs is written by a son trying to convince his son to do life God's way. And so he's teaching his son, he's instructing his son in the ways of God. And in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1, the father says, My son, do not forget my teaching, but let you... Let your heart keep my commandments. What does the father want? For the son to also follow God and live life his way, to make decisions that would please the Lord. Verse two, if you do, son, what will you receive? For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. If we do it God's way, there's benefits practically, this life and the life to come. What's the opposite of that? The way of the treacherous is hard, difficult, challenging, riddled with pain. Psalm 119, verse 165 says, those who love your law have great peace. Why? Because if you love God's law, what does that imply? You love it on Sunday and then ignore it Monday through Saturday? Is that what it means? No, someone who loves God's law is going to do what with God's law? Live it, do it, apply it. And what do they have? Peace. Again, can we ever lose peace with God positionally? As if if I do enough bad things, then that, that, that conflict is reignited and I'm once again under the wrath of God? Again, based on Ken's sermon and from Romans 8, what's the answer? No. Positionally, we will never lose that peace with God. But do we lose it practically? Yes. Romans 8, 6 says, the mindset in the spirit is life and peace. What does the mindset on the flesh bring? Death, pain, trouble, consequences of sin. So these two factors are some of the greatest deterrents against sin in my Christian life. Why? Because it causes me to remember that sin offends Christ and I am united with Christ. Christ's peace is your umpire. Thursday night I was driving to the Fruges for a little fellowship and prayer. I live in the woodlands, I'm driving down Fish Creek Thoroughfare toward 105. And I see speeding behind me one of the most aggressive tailgaters that I have experienced in the last three years. I know that would shock you to find one of those in our sweet community. I could see her as clear as day because she was so close to my bumper, I was afraid to do anything. And so in that moment, I was thinking, what can I do to bless this furiously aggressive tailgater? And you know, I'm a pastor, 
So I thought, well, maybe I'll tap on my brakes. That would probably minister to her. (laughs) I thought, well, slowing down will encourage her because it'll teach her patience. Or better yet, by the time we got to 105, I would just pull up next to her and give her my best dad look. She was young. She probably needed a good dad look. Was the peace of Christ being the umpire in my heart? Again, I keep using that word. I'm sorry. Was the peace of Christ the umpire in my heart? No, what was the umpire? The wrath of Chris. You have no right to do this. And even in that moment, all the thoughts that were coming into my mind about how that's so dangerous, and you have no right, I'm here in front of you. Just wait your turn. Let me move over so you can pass me. It was the wrath of Chris, not the peace of Christ. Now, amazingly enough, for two hours before this happened, guess what verse I was studying? Colossians 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse what? 15. And in that moment, I was convicted. I had just studied this verse. These principles popped into my mind. They were so fresh. They couldn't have been fresher. I was thinking about if the peace of Christ is ruling, that means I'm submitting to the Spirit of God, and what's the fruit of the Spirit? Peace, patience, kindness, self-control. How am I doing so far, church? Man, it was like opposite day. There's no peace or patience or kindness. So I was convicted and in repentance, instead of responding in aggravation like was welling up in my heart and mind, the peace of Christ came over me and it reminded me to feel compassion for this apparently self-absorbed young driver. Instead of getting angry, I prayed for her instead of doing what my flesh wanted to do. Think about how much self-inflicted misery we could avoid if we just allowed the peace of Christ to umpire our hearts? How many words would we hold back? How many sleepless nights we would avoid? How much conflict would end? Because the peace of Christ was ruling. Notice this peace will not only bring purity in my own life and in your life, but it will also bring unity in our relationships. It says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you are called in one Body. What's the body? It's the body of Christ. Individuals who have peace through their own relationship with Christ will have unity with other Christians. Because where should the peace of Christ be more obvious for us as Christians? Here, in our home, assuming we have other Christians there, with the body. Does your Christian home life reflect this? Does our church life reflect the peace of Christ? This is what we're called to. And in Christ, we should have it. I mean, think about it. When we fight, when I have a fight or argument with my wife, why is that? Do I have to fight? Well, Shelly started it. If she hadn't started it, then I wouldn't have done it. Husbands, where does that kind of thinking land us? Why do I have to sleep on the couch? 
when we have a fight, one or both of us are not letting the peace of Christ rule our thinking, our decisions, our actions. Words pop out that I'm like, whoa, why did I say that? Like a flock of birds. How do I get those back in? And I can see it on Shelly's face. She's like, did you just say that to me? She didn't say that, but that's what she's thinking. Was the peace of Christ being the umpire in my heart? Same thing with our kids, same thing with work, same things with church. And so lastly, in this verse, we see the result of this peace of Christ. What does it bring? Thankfulness. The end of verse 15, and be thankful. Again, don't miss this. Thankfulness is repeated three times. Each of this verse, thankfulness is mentioned. Why? What do you and I have to be thankful for? You were a son and daughter of wrath. You were disobedient. You were incapable of pleasing God. You were only going to do your way in your sinfulness until God in his love sent his son to die for you. In repentance and faith, you put your trust in Jesus Christ. And as a result of that, not only is the penalty of your sin taken and put on Christ, but what? Someday Christ is coming back. And you and I are going to be in heaven for all of eternity now, do we have something to be thankful for? Our hearts should be filled with thanksgiving at the thought of what we have in Christ. He's not done with us. He hasn't forgotten us. Thankfulness should come more naturally to us because we're growing humble gratitude for all that God has done. Think about this. Have you ever tried to be selfish and thankful at the same time? How does that work? Proud, selfish, at the same time thankful? Why does that not work? Because who is thankfulness focused on? Something else, in this case the Lord. Who am I focused on in my selfishness? Me, what I expect, what is my right, what I need, what I desire, what I demand. That's why thankfulness is woven through all three of these because at the heart of a Christ-like person should be what? Gratitude. Gratitude. As I was trying to implement this principle with my friendly neighborhood aggressive tailgater, at the end of this process, I was filled with thankfulness that not only could I choose to respond differently in Christ, I didn't have to tap my brakes or teach her a lesson I didn't have to get my guts all tied up in an angry knot. Have that, has that ever happened to you when you're dealing with your kids or someone at work says something or you're driving down the street and someone does something and you, if you get angry and you allow that to develop, what happens? It gets all tied up and you get angry. We don't have to do that. And the most incredible thing of all, my wife will tell you, I used to be that angry tailgater. That was me. And these thoughts were filling my, my heart and mind, and I thought, God, I am so thankful. I mean, the fact that I have to share the story with you means I'm not there yet, right? It's not like I just responded pastorally the first time. I didn't. I was struggling just like you do. But by the grace of God, I'm not that same person that I was. Thank you, God. And what happens when your heart is filling with thankfulness and gratitude? What does it make you more likely to do? God, I want to please you. I want to do it your way. Thank you. 
The first priority is to let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, rule in our lives. Well, what is the second priority that should mark the lifestyle of every Christian? Well, it's the word of Christ in verse 16. The word of Christ. Notice it says, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Again, if we have peace, the peace of Christ in our heart, then the word of Christ will feel at home. That's what this word dwell means. It carries the idea of taking up residence and feeling at home, occupying. You're not a visitor that comes and goes. It, it, it stays, it resides there. In fact, this verse is literally saying, let the Holy Scriptures take up residence in every inch of your life. Every inch, taking up residence. How do we know that? Well, Paul supplies this word richly. Let the word of Christ richly dwell, richly, abundantly, extravagantly. It's massive quantity. So what does this mean practically for us? It means we read the Bible. We think and meditate on the Bible. We study the Bible. We talk about the Bible. We listen to biblical sermons. We memorize the Bible. And why do we do that? Because we're a Bible church and it's our duty. Is that right? Why do we study the word of God? Because who do we want to know? God. Our affection for Christ, we want it to grow as we study his revealed words. If we do these things, then we will have a greater desire to obey the Bible. It's not enough just to read the Bible each day to gather information if we don't allow it to saturate our thinking and change our behavior. Think about Thursday night. I'm driving on the road. What did God use to change my response? You might have read about me in the nightly news that night. Road rage, pastor, tune in at five. That would have been a great thing for Ken to come home to. What was it that God used to change my response? The Spirit of God using the Word of God in that moment to bring conviction, to change not only my thinking, but my response. Again, what was I thinking? I'm right, she's wrong, she has no right to do that. She's a jerk. All those things flooding through my mind in seconds. This is dangerous. And allowing that unbiblical thinking to do what? And again, even if I was right, was she justified in what she did? Anyone want to defend the aggressive tailgater this morning? Was she justified? I don't know, maybe she was going to the ER. I mean, she didn't. She drove into one of the bars along 105, but that's another story. Maybe she had a reason. Does that still justify a sinful response on my part? Is there any way I could justify responding in anger? Help me out. Counsel me, church. No, there's not. God used the word of God to bring conviction in that moment. I put this quote on the back of your handout. John MacArthur says this, I think it is so helpful. 
John MacArthur says, the word in the heart and mind is the handle by which the spirit turns the will. Do you get that? The word in the heart and mind is the handle by which the spirit turns the will. In that moment, the spirit of God was bringing the word of God to mind so that instead of responding sinfully according to the deeds of the flesh, which is the way I wanted to, which would make me happy, I chose instead to allow the word of God to bring conviction, change the way I was thinking about the situation so that in response, I acted Christ-like. Spirit of God using the word of God to change the will to a Christ-pleasing response. Now we know this is true because Colossians 3 and Ephesians 5, they're parallel passages. If you study, we don't have the time this morning, but if you did a comparison, a lot of the concepts are the same. Apparently the, the church in Ephesus was struggling with the same things, some of these same things. Paul wrote the same things to them. And of course, we know being filled with the Spirit is the same concept as being filled with the Word of God. How do we know that? Because in Ephesians 5.18, right before that, this parallel passage, what does Paul say? Do not be filled with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled by what? The Spirit. And he launches into the same section in Ephesians. The Word dwelling richly, taking occupancy in our heart and mind and life is the same thing as being filled with the Spirit of God. Because the Spirit of God uses the Word of God to help us. And what is the result? Christ-likeness. So think about what, what are the results of the Word of Christ richly dwelling in us? Well, Paul gives us two right here in this verse, in verse 16. He says, let the Word of Christ richly dwell within you. Here's the first one with all wisdom, teaching, and admonishing one another. The first one is we're supposed to use biblical wisdom to teach and admonish each other. Now, who's the each other? Who's the one another? Who are we to admonish and teach? My unsaved boss? No, who's the one another? Does it sound like a trick question? It doesn't sound like a trick question. Who's the one another? Brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, right? We're to admonish and teach one another. He's, he's writing a letter to the church. You say, well, what's the difference between teaching and admonishing? Well, teaching is transferring truth, while admonishing is warning people of the consequences of ungodly behavior. Teaching is instruction of biblical truth, helping them grow in their understanding of God's word. Admonishing is, if you keep on the path ignoring God's word, this is what the Bible says will happen. Can you think of admonishing passages like 1 Thessalonians 5.4? There's three people. There's the weak, there's the faint-hearted, and there's the unruly. Who does Paul say we are to admonish? The unruly. We admonish the unruly. Someone who has written rebellion And what do we tell them? Well, it's the proverb I quoted earlier, Proverbs 13, 15. If you continue to disregard God and his word, Proverbs 13, 15 says that the way of the treacherous is hard. That means you are going to experience, even as a believer, if you continue on this path, the discipline of God. Repent now, return. You are breaking the peace of Christ in your life. And so we warn them. 
And is that love or is that the opposite of love? There are people today in the evangelical church that says you shouldn't do that. That's not loving. So you're telling me if your brother or sister is in a burning building, you're not going to tell them, hey, if you stay in there and keep doing that and don't do something different, you're going to burn. It's the most loving thing we could do. If you keep on this path, there's a cliff and you're about to step off of it. Please don't jump off. That is love. This is our Christian responsibility. But we must know the word. In order to teach and admonish others, we have to know what the Bible says. So when do we teach and admonish? Well, we do it formally. We do it informally. Sometimes people come in for counseling. Sometimes they go have a Starbucks and they just talk about life and something comes up. And before you know it, you're encouraging them with truth. It's very natural. You didn't plan it. They didn't plan it. Who did plan it? God. We do it through our preaching. We do it through discipleship. And again, when we teach people, are we just trying to convey biblical truth and information? In the Great Commission, what did Jesus say? Teach them to what? Observe all that I have commanded. It's not enough just to teach them truth. Part of this teaching is also teaching them to live it, to apply it. We teach and admonish. And notice what it says. He adds something that's really helpful for us with all wisdom. This implies having both grace and tact. Again, I'm still learning how to do this with my own kids. I had a situation this week where something was going on between two and my kids, and I stepped in thinking I was being a good dad, a godly dad, giving them instruction, a little bit of admonishment worked in there. I started making statements about what I saw, and I exasperated my kids to anger. I provoked them to anger. Why? Because sometimes instead of making statements, we should do what first? Ask questions. Ask questions. It seems to me that this is happening. What's going on in your heart? Why is that happening? Help me understand. I was trying to teach and admonish, but I didn't do it with all wisdom. What do you do when a friend admits they have a sin struggle? They just, blah. oh, <laughs> what do you do? Do you know what the Bible says and how to help them? If not, do you know where to go to point them in the right direction? What do you do when you have a friend, this is even more challenging, who you're pretty sure they have a sin struggle, but they don't see it? And it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. You say, well, I'm just praying for them. According to this passage, who has the responsibility to go and teach and admonish that friend? Who does? Well, Chris, that's why you and the other team, biblical counselors, I'll just point them to you. Is that what this verse says? The one another means you. In fact, it's interesting. I looked this up in the Greek. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. That's not singular. That you is what? Plural. This is for us as the church. All Christians have this responsibility. 
Well, that's the first result of the word of Christ dwelling, teaching and admonishing with biblical wisdom. What's the second? Well, we are to use psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. We are gratefully singing to God. That's what he says. With psalms, hymns, spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now, while I do think these three types of songs overlap, I think it's helpful for explaining at least some basic differences between the three. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. I was amazed how many pages were written on this trying to distinguish, no, a psalm is this and a hymn is this, and at the end of the day, I don't know that it really matters to that extent. We don't really know. But I think it's helpful to give at least some basic guidelines. The psalms, this is probably the easiest to identify. These were psalms taken directly from the Old Testament Psalter, We call it the book of Psalms, the Psalter. And they were sung. They were put to music and sung to God. So what's an example of this? It's my new favorite song, Psalm 130. I will wait for you. I will wait for you. It's that beautiful psalm uh, that we sing. And if if you look at the lyrics of the song, it's taken directly from the psalm. So that would be a modern-day example of how we're trying to do that. What's a hymn? How many of you have sang Crown Him with Many Crowns before? All right, how many of you like Crown Him with Many Crowns? Yeah, you notice who's raising their hands? Everyone who used to use a hymn book, right? What's a hymn? Well, an expression of praise to God. We, we have hymn books full of songs of praise that are specifically directed to God. Crown him with many crowns. What's the whole point? We are crowning you, God. It's directed to, to him. And then what's a spiritual song? Well, songs of testimony expressing what God has done for us. This may be more of a reflective, maybe more of a response. Again, we're not 100% certain. You can see how these three might even overlap, how a single song might have all three aspects in it. I think the point is that there is a definite relationship between our knowledge of Scripture and our ability to genuinely, humbly, and thankfully worship God through our singing. I think that's why these, this verse connects all of this for us. The more we learn about God and His wonderful grace in our lives, the more we are able to sing with what? Singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God at the end of verse 16. Now you may have noticed, if you've been with us here at Lakeside Bible Church, we don't always sing the most popular songs from KSBJ. It's true, isn't it? Sometimes I listen to those songs, and I think, is the songwriter talking to God or his girlfriend? I'm not sure. Sometimes those songs have a lot of repetition, seems to be lacking in substance. Again, I don't have anything wrong with repetition. I think repetition needs to have purpose, though, like Psalm 136. The loving kindness of the Lord is everlasting. That's repeated every verse. It's repetition with purpose, with intention. So we don't always do the most popular songs, but Chris does a great job. In fact, I don't know if you know this, but Pastor Ken likes to pick new songs, too. They're the dynamic duo. I don't know which one is Batman and which one's Robin, but I'll let you figure that out. They are the dynamic song-picking duo. And they work really hard to find songs that fill us with biblical truth about God so that we might accurately sing back to God the praise that fills our heart. 
Now, I know some of you are more emotional than others, right? You don't have to raise your hand if you're the emotional type. You just you start singing a song, you start crying, you, the hands, you can't help it, you start doing this. Anybody know those people? They're like, they can't help it. Are you trying to get to heaven? What, what are you doing? They, they move. What is that? Emotion. Now think about this. Does Lakeside Bible Church strike you as an emotional song-singing church? You do not know how to answer that, do you? And again, we can't judge someone's worship based on what they do or don't do. I just want to make that very clear. But I think even from this verse, there is something about information affecting emotion. The information that's on that screen that you're singing, those words, there are many of these songs are coming right from Scripture, and as you think about the lyrics on, on the screen and you think about what it's saying about God and what he's done for you, and you go, crown him with many crowns, the Lord upon his throne. What is that? What is that? I'm guilty of that myself. Information should elicit in us this emotion. And you know, sometimes you sing a song and you just bow your head and and weep or cry. Why? Because that song is exposing something in your life and you feel horrible about it because it offended Christ. And even in that song, you're not singing, but you're, you're worshiping God because you're repenting in your heart. Why? Because of the information has elicited something in your will and in your affection and your mind. Because the truth of Scripture is impacting you. And sometimes you sing a song and you're like, wow, God did that for me. I've been singing this song for three years. I never saw it like that. Maybe you're in a season of life where all of a sudden those words come and they're vivid, 3D, Dolby sound. And it's like, wow. It's important for us to sing this truth to God, especially as there does seem to be an aspect in this passage where the lyrical contents of the songs that we sing back to God are used to teach and admonish us even as we worship God as the word of Christ is being sung. Now, don't worry, I'm not going to go find you in a hallway and sing a song of admonishment. Hey, Bill, just wanted you to know I see your sin. You need to repent now. That would be weird. We're not going to do that. Yeah. I don't think that's what this is saying. I think there is a corporate element where as we worship and gather together, as we're listening to a song and you're hearing your brothers and sisters sing it, it may bring about that that brokenness and repentance. And sometimes it's appropriate for you just to bow your head quietly and stop singing and get right with God. Because after all, can you truly worship God if you're not dealing with your sin? It's a sermon for another day. One of my favorite professors in seminary, I think he said this just to humble us as preachers and pastors, but he reminded us that the average church attender might remember 5% of the message. That's really encouraging for a pastor who spends 20, 30 hours preparing a message and you're only going to remember 5% of what I say. When can we do this again? 
But then he said, but they will be singing the songs that you pick throughout the week. What did he mean? It's true, isn't it? You, we teach you a new song, maybe you've never heard it, and, and it gets stuck in your head, and you download it on Spotify, and you're singing it, and you're singing And what are you doing? Throughout the week, you're singing lyrics of biblical truth that impact you and what you do and say that week. Our singing is important. What's the point? I think we need to pick our songs carefully. In just a practical application, how throughout the week are you allowing the word of God being joyfully and thankfully expressed from the songs of your heart? Are you worshiping God throughout the week or is it just when you come on Sunday morning and you have to because you were corporately singing? If this word of Christ and peace of Christ are ruling and dwelling in your hearts, it should emote something in you. And you don't have to raise your hands or not raise your hands or be stiff as a board. Or, and that's between you and the Lord. I mean, if you start dancing, dancing down the aisle, we might have to have a talk, but I don't think that's happened yet. See a rusty cook dancing down the aisle, that'd be... Well, he's my elder, so I would let him. <laughs> Having the peace of Christ will allow us to be filled and directed by the word of Christ. Here's the third priority that should mark every Christian's life. Just briefly, the name of Christ. The name of Christ, verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Again, the most basic rule of every Christian life is to do everything. Everything. What does everything mean? Everything. In the name of Christ. Again, Paul doesn't want us to be confused, so he gives us this comprehensive command involving both what we say, that's the word part, and what we do, that's the deed part. You say it, you do it, it needs to be done in the name of Christ. Whether you're playing tennis or watching TV or eating or exercising or driving or mowing the lawn, working, making dinner, talking with your friends, shopping, taking a nap, disciplining your kids, singing songs in church, reading your Bible, planning for your future, or driving to the Frugies on a Thursday night. You are to do them like Christ would. You think, well, Chris, so what's in a name? Well, the name of Christ indicates our identity with him. When we do or say things as Christians, and we are saying and doing them in agreement with his revealed will, in subjection to his authority, in dependence on his power, our actions and words must say that Christ is not only Lord and Savior of our life, but he is and does exactly what he claims. I'm living in agreement with who Christ is and what he's called me to be. Again, we know the verses, 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whatever you do, whether you're eating or drinking, do it what? To the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 5, 9, we make it our ambition, whether home or absent, to be what? Pleasing to him. To give God glory is to please him, to live in such a way that he looks at us and, and we say, God, you are worthy and I'm gonna live so that everyone knows you are my God and I love you more than anything else. Be pleased in what I do. I went to visit a friend one time. He used to live here. He worked at Anadarko, that big building down in the woodlands by the mall. I went to the receptionist who gave me a plastic card with one word on it. What do you think it said? Visitor. I felt really special. As I walked around that building, everyone who saw it pinned to my shirt knew exactly who I was, a visitor. It was my identity. When I left the building, I handed it to the receptionist and I walked out. At times, we wear our Christianity like an ID card. 
We wear it when it's convenient. We wear it when we'll benefit. We wear it when we feel like someone's watching. We certainly wear it on Sunday. I mean, in the parking lot, that's, you, know, you don't have to wear it there. You're having that, finish that conflict, finish that argument, yell at each other. The minute you get out of the car, what happens? Pin it back on. We feel obligated to do it. Oh, I have to. I'm a Christian. That's what the Bible says. Christian, don't take it off when you leave the building. Christ is in you. You are in him. Keep it on. Why? Remember Galatians 2.20, the verse I started with? In Christ, how do we live? We live by faith in the Son of God. Here's the, verse, uh, the passage section I want you to think of. Who loved me and gave himself up for me. Why should you not take it off when you leave the building? Because you are representing the one who loved you to death. You go in his name. Notice Paul wants to make sure we've received this theme of thankfulness, so he says it again, giving thanks through him to God the Father. What do you have to be thankful for this morning? I think sometimes we need to take a moment and just start writing out a list of things that I have to be thankful for. Because if the peace of Christ and the word of Christ, and we're doing it in the name of Christ, if those priorities are in our Christian life, what will result is thankfulness. And if you have not been thankful recently, it could be that one or more of these priorities are missing. Well, this morning, three priorities that should mark the lifestyle of every Christian. The peace of Christ ruling our decisions provides a willing and obedient home for the word of Christ, which in turn establishes the name of Christ as our standard of living. To have these three priorities is to do what Colossians and Ephesians says, to put off sin and put on Christ as our standard of living. This is the obligation of every believer, and Ken's going to get here in Romans 13, but Romans 13, verse 14 says, Rather, clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. I love that picture of just putting on Jesus like a cloak and wearing it. The goal of the Christian life is Christ's likeness. Believers should so clothe themselves that with Jesus Christ that when people look at them, they see Christ. How's your bucket this morning? Is it full? Do you have wet feet? Is it obvious to everyone around you that Christ is your Lord and Savior? If so, it's going to change the way we drive on 105. It's going to change what we post on social media and text messages and Facebook posts. It's going to affect the way we talk to our kids in those unguarded moments. Christ in you will become more and more obvious to all. May these priorities be yours in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the opportunity this morning to study these passages and to be reminded of all that you have done for us in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, would you help reveal anything in us, any way that we are not allowing the peace of Christ to be an umpire in our hearts where we're not allowing the word of Christ to richly dwell within us and we are not doing everything in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, with thankfulness through it all. 
Lord, grant to us the ability, the humility, the teachability to see those things that prevent us from being like Christ. By your spirit and the power of the word of God, show us ways that we can bring glory to you. It's in the precious name of Christ we pray. Amen.